Good morning. As I said, Exodus chapter 11 is our text for study this morning, 11 verses 1 through 9. And I want to thank you as you're turning there too for letting me be with my daughter last week and watching her in the final game of her championship. She didn't win it, but they didn't expect to get nearly that far. It was a very special time for us as a family, and we appreciate you supporting our family. But we miss you when we're gone, and uh, we miss talking about the plagues. Uh, 11 verses 1 through 9 is the 10th plague, and we have discovered that the gospel is in the plagues. The gospel according to the plagues, who would ever think it, but this is the kind of God that we have. And I want you to notice before we read verses 1 through 9, something that uh, we only passed over in chapter 10 in the last plague, the plague of darkness. But it makes much more sense to us now, it will make much more sense to us in studying this 10th plague, and it's in verse 25 of chapter 10. When, uh, let me give you a little context, remember a couple of plagues back farther, uh, Pharaoh said, okay, Moses, enough is enough, you may go, your men may go, but your wives and, uh, your wives and children and your livestock must stay here. He thought that he could draw them back by keeping hold of their wives and children, and Moses said, no way, and then the plague came. And, and then he says, uh, you may go with your, with your children, they may go with you. After the plague of darkness, they may go with you. You can take your children, but you've got to leave the livestock here. Moses says in verse 25 of chapter 10, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we don't know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. Can you imagine? Do you, you understand what he's saying? Pharaoh's saying, now you can go. You can leave your enslavement here in Egypt, just leave your livestock here. That would have been good enough for me, frankly. Okay, we can find some other cows and other beasts. We'll find them eventually. But not for Moses, the spiritual leader of Israel. Not for the people. They couldn't bear the thought of not having anything to worship God with. They couldn't bear the thought of being on the other side of redemption, being liberated from Egypt and having nothing with which to say thank you. What a word for a, th for a stewardship season. And yet the motivation for them is the same as for us. What could possibly be so powerful that it would motivate these under Moses' leadership to choose to remain in their slavery before they would have nothing with which to honor God, nothing with which to say thank you to Him? Well, the answer, ironically enough, is in this final plague that we read about in verses 1 through 9, and then we will continue next week or in the next time we pick up this, this, um, this series. Chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. 
Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all of these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we pray that through Jesus you would pour out the Holy Spirit on us. On this word as it has been read, as it will be preached, as it will be heard. That the Spirit would bear witness by and with it in our hearts. Convincing us of the good news of the gospel. Some of us will be convinced for the very first time. Some of us will be re-convinced. Whatever, Lord, we pray for the same, that you would convince and convict us of the good news of the gospel of adoption. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake and God's people said together, amen. <clears throat> when I first started pastoring, I was in a tiny church and there was one single woman in our church. I mean, there were other women, but there was only one who was single. And uh, at work, she met a young man who became interested in her. The problem was he was not a Christian. This young man was interested in her, but she knew that she couldn't date him. She was a believer. He was an unbeliever. She knew she couldn't marry him. She was a believer. He is an unbeliever. She could not be unequally yoked with him, but he persisted. He said he wanted to, to meet with her. He wanted to spend some time with her. And he, she said, finally, you know, I don't have a lot of time through the week, but uh, here are a few times where you could see me. If you want to see me, you can see me between 8 and 11 on Sunday morning, between 6 and 7 on Sunday evening, and between 7 and 8 on Wednesday evening. The Sunday morning worship service, the Sunday evening worship service, Sunday school, and the prayer meeting. Well, this young man became more regular in his attendance than some of our officers. He was there every time the door was open. He was there at all of those worship services and even the Wednesday night prayer meeting. 
because he was interested in her. He uh, asked if he could meet with me to, to ask his questions about the gospel because even though he had been raised in a church, it was a church that, that preached works salvation and, and a lot of things confused him about our church. We met over a number of, of uh, weeks and months and finally one day he said, you know, the, the biggest question I have is that, that you use the word grace in a way that I, I'm just not used to. You talk about grace a lot, but as I grew up understanding grace, grace is something that you earn. Grace is something that is rewarded, uh, a reward to you doing the right thing. But you seem to imply that grace can only be received, that it's a gift. I said, that's exactly right. Well, he just couldn't get his head around that. We met more. And one day, I didn't really intend uh, this as a breakthrough moment, but it was a breakthrough moment for him because he had been married before and he was raising uh, the son of his uh, former wife and he loved his son dearly. And he had not had a good father himself, so he was pouring himself into his son, trying to be a very good father for his son. And I said one day, you know, here is what grace is. Here's, Here's the essence of the gospel Through God's Son, we become sons. Through God's Son, we become sons. The light bulb, he he said it just that way, the light bulb went on for him. He said, "That's that's, I, I understand it now. God offers love to us as I do to my child. My child hasn't done, my son hasn't done anything to earn my love. He is my He is my son. I love him. He can only receive my love. That's what you're saying grace is. That's what you're saying the gospel is. Yes, that's what it is. Now, I forgot to tell the rest of the story in the first service. I left them hanging. Yes, he became a Christian. And yes, they got married. And uh, yes, he is even a ruling elder in a Presbyterian church in the Northeast. He received the gospel and became a child of God. Now, that is the good news of this tenth plague, believe it or not. It it explains why God became so angry because Pharaoh was attacking his son. God had called Israel his son. Now, when we study Scripture, we have, to, we have to study it in movements. And one movement is that we, the first one is that we exegete the text. That is, we just understand what the words say. We have to understand what the, what the words uh, are telling us, what they're teaching us. And so we've, we've learned that. God says, if, if, you, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to take your firstborn son. But then we need to move on beyond there and we need to ask, where does this fall in redemptive history? That's called historical theology. We have have to ask, how how does this anticipating the coming of Christ, how is this filling out the picture? Because God is progressively revealing the good news of Jesus. How does this add details to it? Well, we learn what it's what it means to be saved under the blood of a lamb. We, we know that we're anticipating a lamb of God. We're anticipating salvation by grace. And we're, we're learning that if you reject it, death is to be anticipated. 
And then we move on beyond there. We have to, we have to, to say, now, what, are the, what, are the, what is the systematic theology here? What are the doctrines that are taught here? What are we supposed to know and learn so that it might form us? And the doctrine that we encounter here is, is among other things, the doctrine of the adoption of God's sons and daughters that God loves us enough that He's called us His children, then, we, then we, we move on to teaching and preaching. That is, we apply it. We say, what difference does it make in your life? What difference will it make in your life if you know that God loves you enough to give His Son to make you a son? Well, let's look at it here as it unfolds for us in verses 1 through 9. We have this, this basic story that Pharaoh finally provoked God to the point that he unleashed his full fury. You know that God has, has given Mo, uh, Pharaoh uh, 12 warnings now, not just the 10 plagues, but two additional warnings. And one of those warnings came in chapter 4, verse 23, when he said, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. God said, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God has given Pharaoh many warnings saying, let my people go. And beyond that, I'm telling you, Pharaoh, this is not just my people. These, this corporately is my son And it was because Pharaoh tortured and enslaved and abused God's son that God's anger is kindled and he unleashes it against Pharaoh. Now you can tell what somebody loves by what makes them angry. Sometimes it's embarrassing. Like if you, somebody hurts your car and you get angry about it, well, it shows that you love your car. You get angry about somebody threatening your livelihood, it's because perhaps you love this world too much. You, you get angry about somebody embarrassing you, it's because perhaps you, are, you love yourself. If somebody messes with your child, you get angry. Why? Because you love them. Why is God angry? Why is God so angry that He unleashes His fury on Pharaoh and those who refuse to be saved under the blood of the Lamb? Because Pharaoh has attacked God's Son. God has been patient. God has endured. God has given him warnings. But enough is enough. And God says, you will not get along. You will not get away with this any longer. You have attacked my firstborn. God unleashes his anger. I have a friend whose sister was <clears throat> taken into a cult when she was uh, in her uh, teens. And that cult convinced her to cut off her relationship with her family and, and to renounce her father and mother and, and every member of her family and to call the cult her new family. And they, they took her away. They, they wouldn't let her call home. They wouldn't let them call her. They eventually didn't know where she was. And they were frantic, of course. They were people of God. They were praying, but they were frantic. And they were angry that somebody had taken their daughter away. Finally, they found her. 
the help of a private investigator, they found her, and she was in a motel room with a bunch of these other cult members. And my friend's father, who was a very large Czech man, a man from Czechoslovakia, he went up to the second floor and he knocked on the room of the door, or the, the, the door of the room where she was, and they didn't answer it. They looked at the people, saw who it was. They're not going to answer it. She didn't belong to you anymore. My friend's father kicked in the door. He went through. People tried to stop him. He threw them against the wall. He grabbed his daughter. He threw her over his shoulder and he walked out. He brought her back home. And the family loved her back into wholeness and healing. That's what love does. That's what a, a parent does when their child is threatened. That's what God has done. God is kicking in the door of Egypt to say, you must let my people go. But you know, we know something else about these people. That's what happened historically. That's the theological explanation for God's fury. But there's more to it that relates to you and me. And that is that God was kicking in the door of Egypt to get his corporate son Israel out because his son Christ was among them. I know that sounds strange uh, to you because we're talking in the Old Testament and, you, and we're, we're coming up on Christmas and Jesus is, it, when Jesus is born and he's told his birth is recorded in the New Testament. But I read to you some weeks ago from Jude verse 5. You don't have to turn there, but Jude is the second to last book in the Bible. It's so short it only has verses, it doesn't have chapters. And Jude verse 5 reads this way, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That's there in the New Testament. Jesus took his people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. Christ was among the people of Israel. Jesus hadn't been born yet, but the second person of the Godhead, the one who is the agent of redemption, came among the people of God. He was with them. And because he was with them, God says, out of Egypt I have brought my son not just the son, the firstborn son Israel, but Christ the son. Christ fully identified with them in their slavery. And because Christ was with them, God led them, Christ led them out of Egypt. That's an amazing thought. And then it's even more amazing to think that that same Christ was born in history among us. He put on flesh so that we could see him. Christ was just as truly present in Israel when he redeemed his people, but now we could see him by putting on flesh. And he put on flesh, the Bible says, in order to make us sons and daughters. I want you uh, sisters to understand before I forget to say it, that you mustn't be, you mustn't be offended when the Bible says he makes you sons because he said that very strategically to women of this first century culture 
who were thought to be second-class citizens just as women. And then they were, they were never able to get an inheritance because only the son could get the inheritance. And here the gospel is making this radical statement that in Christ all are sons. Men and women and children all are made heirs. That's uh, proven in Galatians chapter 4. Again, you don't have to turn there, but, but listen as, as Paul describes what happens to us as a result of Jesus' work. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We were, we were enslaved just like the children of Israel. We were orphans just like the children of Israel. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir of God. Jesus came not just to save us, not just to make us righteous, not just to clean us up, not just to get us into heaven. Jesus came to make us sons and daughters of God. How did he do it? He came by being born under the law. That's what Galatians 4 says. He was born under the law. That means he was born under the same requirements of the law that we have and the same threat that if he disobeyed the commandments that he would die, that he would suffer in hell. He was born under the same law. So he lived. He lived for 33 years or so. He lived in our place, fulfilling the law perfectly in our place. He repented in our place. He believed in our place. He obeyed in our place. And then when the time came, he was condemned, falsely accused and condemned to be uh, crucified on a tree. And there he took our place as the condemned criminal, though he had never done anything wrong, though he had never sinned against God. All of our sins, all of our shortcomings are loaded on him. He became sin for us. And when he became sin for us, the Father turned his face from him and Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see what's happening there? Not only is he becoming and becoming sin in our place, he's, he's being orphaned in our place. And then he dies and he, he descends to, to take on the forces of hell. But the righteousness of his life atoned for the sins that he had taken from us on himself. And while death proved that he was guilty... His resurrection proved that he was justified. He was raised because we were justified. We by faith are joined in that resurrection and, and we are justified. That's good news. But the Bible also says that when he was raised to life, he, was, he became, he was adopted a son of God. Remember I said he had been orphaned? Because of our sin, he now becomes a son of God. And when he does, because we're joined to him, we are adopted too. J.I. Packer calls this the greatest truth 
The news of our adoption. The news that we're not just cleansed of sin. That we're not just legally excused from sin. Or our, our legal atonement has been made for our sin. But we have been made children of God. That God loves us as his sons and daughters. You know, it would be one thing if I woke up every morning and Jackie were to say to me, I just want to inform you that we're still legally married today. I mean, that's a relief. It's a relief when I learn that every morning. I don't deserve it. But it's an entirely different thing for her to say, I love you. It's good news what we repeated earlier, that we are justified, that our sins have been satisfied legally by the righteous substitution of the Son of God. But an even greater truth is that God says, I love you. The, the, the children of Israel went from being slaves to sons. The second person of the Godhead went from being a son to being orphaned to being a son, making us and now making us sons. You once were orphaned. You once were living as a slave to the principles of this world, to the condemnation of the law. That's what we read in Galatians chapter 4. But do you realize now you have been adopted and that adoption was the, the focus of God's redemption. The Bible says that, that we were chosen, that we were elected in order to be sons and daughters of God. It says that Christ became a man, that we might become sons of God. It says that Christ died on the cross, that we might become sons of God. He was resurrected, that we might become sons of God. The Bible says the whole history of the world is focused on this mission of God making us His children. We should believe it. Just that He wrote it down, that should be enough for us, but do you Realize that God dedicated a whole person, one whole person of the Trinity for the sake of convincing you that you're a child of God. We won't take time to turn there, but you could turn later to Romans chapter 8. And, and God is so intent, not, He not only wants you to be His child, He wants you to know you are His child. And so He says, He sends the Spirit in chapter 8, verse 16, he sends the Spirit to bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You've not been given a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, he says. You have been given a spirit of adoption by which you cry out, Abba, Father. That's why we raise our hands in worship, because we're reminding ourselves that we're children, Father. Pick me up, hold me, embrace me in your love. Not only does he, does he promise that he gives us the spirit to convince us, and it's not a one-time convincing. He's continually having to convince us, isn't he, that we are the beloved of God. He's continually, I say with embarrassment, having to convince your pastor that he's a beloved child of God over and over again. He has to remind me, he has to remind you, 
And he never grows tired of it, reminding you, you are my child. You're adopted in my beloved son, Jesus Christ. Not only does he do that, he promises. He promises that there is more to come. In Romans chapter 8, again, he says that in the great day, that day when all of history is, is finalized, he says, not only will the creation be raised, will it be set free from its bondage to corruption, will, will everything that's broken be fixed, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit who groan inwardly, we are groaning inwardly because we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I, I can only tell you what the Bible says. I can't understand it. The Bible says that now we are called children of God and that's who we are. But the day is coming when we'll be even more convinced of it and we'll be even more realistically the children of God, not just in our spirits, but in our very bodies. And then he says, he's going to make you like a refrigerator magnet. He's going to be a true dad. A tr he's, he's going to put you in his cosmic refrigerator and say, those are my children. He's going to raise us to life and display us to the whole cosmos. That's what Romans 8 says. Display us to the whole cosmos and say, these are my children. It's not that he's going to whisk you and say, would you come in the back door? I'm so embarrassed that you, of you. Uh, just come in here, I'll get you into heaven, but I don't want anybody to know that you're my children. That's not God. He's pleased to call you his child and to be known as your father. Why is God so angry in Exodus 11? Because Pharaoh tried to exterminate his firstborn son, Israel. Because Pharaoh, in doing so, tried to kill Christ, who would come through that line of Israel. God was so angry because Pharaoh, the instrument of the devil, tried to stop salvation from getting to you and to me. He tried to stop you and me from becoming the children of God, and God kicked in the door of Egypt and let his people go. That's what love does. It was January the 10th, 1845, when the first letter arrived from Robert Browning to Elizabeth Barrett. Elizabeth Barrett was already a famous poet, world-renowned at that time. Robert Browning was a, a budding poet, and he admired her work. He wrote Elizabeth Barrett a, a letter and, and, and bragged on her poetry, and at the end of the letter he said, and oh yeah, I love you too. He asked if he could come visit her. She said he could come visit, but when he, he arrived, she didn't come see him. She didn't come out of her bedroom. She couldn't. She'd been in there for six years. They, they thought she had the, 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 the signs of tuberculosis. It wasn't tuberculosis, though. It was, it was the oppression and the cruelty of her father. Her father had, made, had inherited his money from his father, who was the largest 
landowner of the West Indies and made all of his money in rum and sugar. Elizabeth Barrett's father, though, discovered that his father had passed on to him West Indian blood. And Elizabeth Barrett's father forbade his 11 children from getting married because he did not want them to have children with dark skin. Elizabeth Barrett was dying of a broken heart. Well, Robert Browning was turned away, but he didn't quit writing. And 575 letters later, Elizabeth Barrett agreed to let him come back. And this time she came down the stairs. The first time she'd been out of her room and she came down the stairs. Uh, ordinarily she had to be carried everywhere. She came down the stairs in her own strength, on her own two feet. And in eight months, they eloped. Her father threatened her. You get married, I'll disown you. They eloped. Her father disowned her. Her brothers disowned her. No member of her family would claim to be related to her. But how did she describe it? The first poem she wrote after they got married was The Runaway Slave. And then she, she said elsewhere, Robert Browning saved me from my grave clothes. He gave me a resurrection. They went on to have a child together and and she eventually wrote a poem that you may know. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. It's what love does. Love captures, protects, fights for, is proud of. That's the kind of God we have, the kind of God the kind of love you have from God the Father. And if it's not, it's yours for the asking. Even if you've thought you were a Christian and, you, and you've never known God in that kind of intimate way, you've never known that you could call Him a Father, that He could be proud of you and love you as a child, then today must be the day of your salvation. Just ask Him for it. And ask along with it for that Spirit to bear witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we pray that you would take this word that we have heard with our ears and make it, make it true in our hearts. Seal it to our hearts. Convince those who are already Christians they're children of God. Convince those who are wandering away, running away as prodigals, they need to come back to the Father, convince those who have never believed on Christ to embrace Him as their brother and God as their Father. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said, amen.